All right, so this is the third session of our exploration of the Anapanasati, of the mindfulness of breathing. And I thought we'd start actually, um, since we're in this different place and we have some um, of the resident volunteers here, I thought we'd go around and say our names. So. I'm Jim. My name is Nick. I'm Tina. I'm Moksa. My name is Praktiba. Uh, Maggie. Judith, Kavita, Inani. Great, thanks. And Judith and Tina um, live here as residents and are um, joining us tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I thought we'd just start with a debrief on anything that you've seen in your practice in the last couple weeks since... I know some of you have been choosing to work with the breath meditation and some of the 16 steps. Does anyone have any observations or things that's been coming up? I think we were focusing on the second and third tetrads over these last couple weeks. Yeah, Nick. Um, I found the mind looking for the breath when it gets lost more often now, which has been nice. Uh-huh. So it's like you so see it as an anchor to come back to. You remembered that that's what you yeah, were thinking of, of a, doing. As soon as I notice I'm lost somewhere and whatever it is, it kind of gets anchored back. The next quicker, thought is where's just, the breath? Okay, yeah. Where's the breath? And then uh, it kind of finds a step instead of going right to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Whether it's, you know, I can feel that it's a feeling tone that's kind of Oh, this is most prominent or something. Yeah, it'll kind of start there and then work its way back. Great. Yeah, um, I think we talked about it this at the end of the last class. um, Maybe is that you you don't need to uh, rigidly start at number one each time. They they do kind of unfold in a sequence, and I think we'll talk about that more today. But if you happen to land on a feeling tone, you know, they can just kind of go forward from there. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that you um, mentioned that your mind looks for the breath when you just come back. That's actually part of the quality of mindfulness. You know, sati actually means memory. It means what it is that I was trying to keep in mind. Um, and so that's one aspect of it. Of course, it had you know, mindfulness has many different aspects, but one is remembering what it is that you were trying to do. And so, and that's conditioned by just. We were doing that before, and so the mind remembers, oh, that's right, that's what I was supposed to be doing. So you've, you've seen it unfold in your own mind. Yeah. And that makes mind an ally rather than a... Yeah, we don't always have to think like, oh, it's so bad, my mind's not doing the right thing. I mean, yeah, it wanders off, but it's like a puppy, you know. And yeah, the mind does have an aspect there. I mean, it's your mind that brought you here. As I want to meditate, I want to develop my heart. All those good things that you do come from your mind also. Anything else? I found it very helpful in these, this week, with all that's happened, um, to go right back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Just the simple, just simple, simple knowing the breath. Just knowing the breath. It's like 
anchor. I think yeah. we have used that mm-hmm. word too. Mm-hmm. We're still breathing. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we're still breathing. <laughs> Actually, you reminded me that I had a little thing that came to me um, earlier that I wanted to start with, and I totally blew right by it. Um, <laughs> which well, is that, but I'll put it in now. <laughs> which is that um, I was just remembering that I used to I used to play sports when I was um, in my teens and twenties, and I was a soccer player in particular. And there was, um, you know, it happens in soccer that. Um, People fall down and get jarred or they get injured or something. Things that, you know, you don't try for those things to happen. But sometimes it happens, and so there's a person down. And it's always very heartening, actually, at least in the soccer I played, is that both teams would just immediately stop Mm -hmm. and come over and make sure the person was okay. But often the person would be a little bit dazed or shocked, or they'd be afraid because they were in pain or there was blood or something. And always what you say to someone is, breathe. And that was the first that you know, it's like somebody's lying because you forget. You know, it's like the person is and and you know, you'd say, breathe, breathe, and they would and they would breathe and then, you know, someone would come and help them off the field or whatever. This wasn't very frequent. I don't want to make it sound like this happened a lot, but you know, when it did. And it was always um, the instruction was always to breathe. And so I thought well, what a perfect thing for this week is, you know, whatever state you're in, we're going to breathe tonight. <laughs> Just breathe. Breathe. And everything gets better when you open up and breathe. Because, I mean, actually, literally in the body, you're getting oxygen into your tissues, which you need if you're injured. So, it's all good. Breath is really good. <laughs> perfect. So, um... I also really appreciate this practice. Yeah. As other people have said. It's something you can come back to, it sounds like. That's what I'm hearing as a theme. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's really helpful um, just being out in the world, you know, handling things, you know, whatever, you know, and can just go go into that at times. And Mm -hmm. it's such a help. I, I'm, I'm noticing, um, I, I don't know how it is for, for other people, but it um, it's easier, the first two are easier. The first two tetrads? Yeah. And, I see, um, when you get up into the third and fourth, it feels different to you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working on the third one, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, what, what feels easy in the first two? Well, you know, there's the word accessible, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. but somehow I can just really do that. It it, it, it just feels like my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just to notice the breath, and then I think this has been the best experience so far of really feeling the body, you know, and, and then I can just feel it and really feel it. Um, more than than before, mm-hmm. and uh, help it to uh, relax, mm-hmm. and then and then the parts about you know um, kind of um, what do you say um, you know oh you good mind you know <laughs> you good mind okay and now let's let's steady you because that's a good. Feeling. Emphasizing the positive. 
parts. Well, yeah. well, yeah. It's like yeah, just as someone else mentioned, and then, and then, um, yeah, helping you know with the steadiness. Um, so at any rate, th- those just feel you know mental fabrication. Wow, it's great. <laughs> it's great to to be able to see that and relax yeah, it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and just go. Oh, there you are again. <laughs> and the breath just flows through it. Yeah. yeah. So somehow it just seems um, this this seems to to be more accessible. You know. Great. <laughs> and the breath is so amazing, right? Because we've been doing it since the moment we were born. And mm. we haven't often... How many of those did we notice in however many decades we've lived? And then, you know, once we kind of open up to it, it's like, wow, there's this whole world here, and it's with me all the time. And, mm. and there's just something so simple and yet very deep about the, the breath. Okay, well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit just to finish getting us through the the discussion of the 16 steps, and then we'll um, we will do a guided meditation later. Also, uh, but we're gonna do all of them. <laughs> so um, we've talked about the first three tetrads up to now, and just as a review. Um, the the tetrads or the sets of four instructions are said to parallel the four foundations of mindfulness. They're sort of making this analytical link. Um, And we can talk actually afterwards when we're kind of assessing the whole thing about about that. Um, But the first three then correspond to the body and the feelings and the mind, which are the first three foundations of mindfulness. And so then there's this fourth one, um, which must correspond to the fourth foundation of mindfulness. But let's just have a look first at what this one is. Um, You don't need your book or your printout necessarily if you don't happen to have it in front of you, because I'm going to read them. Um, Let me just get both in front of me here. There it is. Yeah, so we've gone all the way up through training to experience and tranquilize the bodily formation. Well, first there's the understand. I breathe in long, I breathe in short. Then there's the training. We switch the verb. Training to experience the body, tranquilize the bodily formation. Um, Then we go on to the feelings, experiencing rapture, pleasure, the mental formation, and then tranquilizing the mental formation. So the kind of more affective quality of our experience we look at and allow to settle. And then the other, the next set of trainings is experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, and liberating the mind, which we talked through last time, as this is really the the settling of the system. Um, We've We've gone through, we talked about a concentric circle model with actually the body on the outside and then the feelings and then 
the mind more in the middle. And we've gone through all these different layers and in each case settled it as much as possible. And this liberating, um, most uh, commentators interpret to be liberation from the hindrances. So the mind is concentrated at that point. Um, So this is a, a temporary liberation of mind from unwholesome states. It's not... It doesn't signal necessarily um, a stage of awakening. And then we move on to the fourth tetrad, steps 13 through 16. Uh, the verb in all of these is, is train. Is again train, but there's a switch of the verb in what it is that we do. So up until he, so I train uh, contemplating impermanence, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, and contemplating relinquishment. They're all four the same, whereas in all of the prior tetrads, it had mostly been experiencing, sometimes tranquilizing, and then in the third, there's the gladdening and concentrating and liberating. But those are all, um, those all to me have a different feeling than contemplating. Um, Those are all sort of actions and uh, experiencing. So there's a sense of, um, I'm going to be there with this. Whereas contemplating is, to me, feels different. It's an observational quality to the heart. And the other authors, have, uh, other commentators have picked this up and point out that the first three tetrads have a, a kind of a combination of concentration practice and insight practice. So shamatha and vipassana practice are somewhat interwoven. And the aim by the end of the third tetrad is that the mind is is, is quite concentrated, but it's not that we it's not that we're doing jhana necessarily because um, we're paying attention a little bit to which step we're on and feeling the different things, and so it's not it's not pure jhana practice, but the the aim is to concentrate the mind, and then once the mind is steady, this is how practice works: is that we steady the mind. That's part of it, but it's not enough. We have to then look. We have to use the steadiness of the mind to observe our experience, to observe how things are arising and passing in the body and the mind. And only through that are we going to understand where the problem comes <laughs> and where how we can let go of it. Um, and the reason we say this, I mean, it sounds like, well, okay, of course, that makes sense theoretically. The reason we keep saying it is that it's very tempting to only do the concentration part because it feels really good. <laughs> and so, you know, concentration teachers will point out, remember, this is only a tool. You know, we don't get stuck in the amazing feelings of jhana and concentration. Okay, so so this is vipassana practice in these last four instructions. And what is it that we look at? Actually, that's a question. What's the very first thing we look at? Step 14. Yeah, 13. Impermanence, exactly. So really interesting that, you know, in some ways you could say, wow, you study your mind just to see that things change? (laughs) I could tell you that. (laughs) You know? Anybody not think things can change this week? (laughs) So... You know, um, so this gets maybe gets our attention. Maybe there's something really interesting um, about observing change. You know that there's something really um, deeper about it than we might think. 
And this is often what we're pointed towards in our practice. I'm now going out into other teachings besides this one. But how often are we pointed to realize that there's going to be aging, illness, and death? The kind of change that we tend to think isn't really going to happen to us. I'm sure it's going to happen to other people, but I don't know about for me. Um, and, And so the Buddha often points us toward this. It's a very fundamental teaching in, in this tradition. It's often pointed to. And then, after that, we get to ones that are maybe a little bit less obvious than impermanence. Fading away, cessation, and relinquishment. So that's... Um, Fading away is viraga, and cessation is niroda. Relinquishment, oh shoot, I don't have it printed out on this one. It's a word I hadn't heard before. It's like pati, pati samaga. No, pati misaga, something like that. Don't quote me on that. It's funny, I printed, I wrote it on a different piece of paper, and I didn't print it out on this one. Um, so what do you think is going on there? Like... Why is it that looking at impermanence, why do we, what is fading away about, do you think? And cessation. Well, I, I Maggie. Have thought it might have been equanimity. Mm. That's a, actually fairly close in that fading away viraga, raga is the word that's often used for lust. Um, and it's also, it has a dual meaning. It means lust for something not necessarily sexual lust, it's actually just like that desire. Um, or it means die, like not, not um, perish, but like a cloth, you know, okay. coloring, <laughs> coloring. And so um, that's why it's called fading away, <laughs> is that the color, um, the color drains out, or the, um, maybe this isn't a great analogy for the West, <laughs> where we think that, you know, we don't want, we want to be colorful and we want to be vibrant. But the sense is actually that what's fading away is that um, kind of graspy, desire-like quality. It doesn't quite say tanha, but that's um, similar. And so it is related to the development of equanimity and of not getting caught up in the passions of the mind and the heart, which uh, in in ways that bring suffering. And how do you think... um, for anybody who can answer, how does observing impermanence lead to equanimity or a fading of that of that kind of grabby quality of the mind? Either from your experience or just, you know, theoretically what you would think. It's a dropping of attachment, isn't it? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. So why is it what's special about looking at change? It's, it's just so common to be caught by that. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, so many ways. We sometimes don't even see it. Yeah. That's maybe why we're asked to look more carefully at it. It doesn't actually say that we observe attachment necessarily, which is interesting. You know, it doesn't say look at the places where you're grabbing. It just says, look at how whatever it is you're not grabbing onto is changing. (laughs) If you're grabbing, it tends to not change, right? You make it 
permanent. But, um, you know, if you notice that, say, you're caught in something, like this morning you're caught because, you know, the coffee came out too pale. You want a deep, dark, rich coffee and your partner put in the wrong number of scoops in the machine and it ended up being weak, wimpy coffee. And you were caught up in that and you actually snarled at your partner for it. And then, you know, at 10 a.m. when you're sitting at work, you think, that was a really stupid thing to snarl about, <laughs> given the person that I love and I'm sharing my life with. And, um, and so maybe, so, you know, I don't know, there are many responses you could have to that, but one could be to observe, oh, that feeling of being annoyed about the coffee was, was only present at that moment when the coffee was there. And actually, it was kind of done 15 minutes later. I drank the coffee or I didn't drink the coffee, but, you know, life moved on. And now, sitting in my office, I don't have that feeling anymore. Oh, things arise and pass. Um, you know, if we observe this about 10 million times, we start to get the sense that it's not worth it in, uh, for some things. The coffee, we might agree, not really worth it. Um, and so, not that we remember this every time, but this is my idea for what the use of impermanence is, that we see that um, that everything comes and goes, and whatever I thought I was so and was so important this morning is less important um, now. Not everything is so short-term and trivial. Of course, we have long-term real issues in our life or in our heart or in the world that, um, you know, grab at us, and yet they're not 24-7. Has anybody not experienced any positive feelings in the last few days? Any joy, <laughs> lightness, laughter? Of course you did, even though we may have longer-term underlying other feelings. Um, so that's why mindfulness is so important, is to have this continuity of attention. So we're not just looking like for two seconds here and three seconds there and two seconds an hour later. I mean, we all have mindfulness, actually. Um, Even if we're not practicing, mindfulness does arise. Um, But if we have a mindfulness practice and we can observe for a longer time, we have a better chance of noticing the gaps in the unpleasant and the ending of things that are pleasant. And then we have a better chance of getting it of getting that everything really does change. And then starting to experience is fading away. Any other comments on that? One of the things that's important that's fading away is our sense of what is aware of ourselves. Mm. I think that's important, maybe. Now you said fading of what is aware of ourselves. Can you say more what that means? Or, or maybe I didn't understand. What I identify as myself is what is fading away, mm-hmm. is what is impermanent. Yeah. Um, the part of the settling is kind of withdrawing from 
we see and what we feel and what we think. Identifying with the body-mind. Yeah, so... Um, so the sense of something being very personal or being about me um, is lightening up in some way. And that feels important to you. Yeah, the idea of me. The idea of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we tend not to... One of the surprising things about our practice is that we start to see things that we had never even thought we could have a different idea about. Um, it was so close to our way of thinking, so embedded in the process, that we didn't even know we had a choice about that one. Um, and so that's one of the surprises of practice, actually, is to start seeing some things that we didn't even know were there as processes. I'm going off a little bit farther from what you said, but am I roughly springing from it? Yeah, I think it's a hard thing to say, and I appreciate you. I think different people experience what you're saying in different ways also, um, because the idea of the self and what we feel identified with is somewhat individual for different people. We have our favorite thing. (laughs) Um, Some people identify very much with their emotions or with their body or with their views. Um, Or we have different layers of these and, you know, we we stop identifying so much with the emotions after we see the pain of that um, and suddenly we suddenly feel more embodied. We more feel like we are our body, but then that fades, and so there's sort of different steps to it. And then, uh, yeah, there's a lot of steps to this. <laughs> I think it's been conditions, too, that I've been noticing that conditions arise in certain conditions and are pleasant, and I've become attached to that, and I think we all do this to just seek the pleasant mm-hmm. and the conditions that create whatever is pleasant here and then to push away the unpleasant and to see that there is a way to have ease with the unpleasant has been something here of who, who is this self that is pleasant or unpleasant with whatever conditions are here Yeah, and to question that and then to, to be able to have ease in those situations, those places that have been conditions that have been unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice um, that's a nice tying together of the feeling tone aspect and the contemplation of, of impermanence aspect. Now we're bringing in some other contemplations. I, we were, I was talking about impermanence and we're all talking about not-self now, which is lovely. <laughs> um, they are related. And one thing that fades away is our strong identification some people say the sense of self. Um, I've certainly had that experience. Is that um, you know it, it feels like everything's happening, but it's not happening to anybody. <laughs> you know, it's like that would be extra. <laughs> um, so you know we can we should be open to what might fade away, and 
it's very common um, in the fading away uh, step of practice, which is outlined here as a step of breath meditation, but it's actually reflecting kind of one of the things that happens in the process, is there can bring up fear, actually. Something's fading away that I thought was crucial to me. <laughs> and um, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to be gone. So that's um, an aspect that we deal with when it arises. So then we get to cessation. That's an interesting one. It's not... um, I think I don't want to try to give like a really precise definition. It's more an experience. Um, There's different ways to approach it. Remember what we're doing here is contemplating. And one thing that I appreciate about this is that the verb contemplate, I mean, it's... We could also say observe, maybe. Um, The challenge is that our our thinking mind will look at that and say, oh, it's something I'm supposed to do. It's like, okay, I'm going to look at, I'm going to contemplate, think about. Um, But actually remember that when the mind is this still, it's not actively thinking about things. This is really an observation of something that unfolds naturally. And... One thing that happens as we watch things fading or, you know, we watch ourselves just not being as deeply passionate and interested and riding the pleasant and the unpleasant. It used to be like the highs and the lows and the highs and, you know, like, like the way... Um, and then we start to realize, you know, it's actually pretty nice just to kind of cruise or ride without um, getting quite so involved surf instead of getting wet, you know, things like that. And then we can start to be interested in something that we weren't as interested in before, which is the ending of things. We actually see that as things, as as we're willing to see it, we will notice that things end. And it can become quite interesting to watch the ending of things, because actually everything that arises ceases. We may... We may need to observe carefully to know that really, really deeply. But um, and you could ask yourself, is there anything in your experience that arose and will never cease? We may not know for sure, but um, you can know that for sure. And so we, we get willing to see the ending of things. And what's interesting is that there's actually a little bit of nice feeling associated with something ending. You know, there's just a sense of, of that, you know, like it's not, it was there and it's not there. And there's something easeful about an ending um, when we have the equanimity not to attach meaning to it. Oh, that's bad that it ended. Oh, that's good that that ended. If we could actually just see it ending, we see that there's actually something very peaceful in that, even if it was something pleasant ending. And we're asked to actually see cessation as 
an object of meditation. Not through conscious thinking, because then the thinking is not ending. <laughs> yeah, and then there's this step of relinquishment, which I really don't want to talk a lot about <laughs> abstractly. Um, yeah, it, um, it's not a word that's repeated very often in the suttas. It's not the word for liberation or, or um, freedom or... Uh, Ivana, any of those words. The word for relinquishment is, um, it's yeah, it's it means a very deep giving up of something, actually. And my teacher sometimes says it's the feeling of enough. You know, you've seen something many, many times and you've seen, you know everything about it. (laughs) You know how it arises. You know that it's there. You know what it's like when it ends. And sometimes you see things and you see them enough that you know that one, that one is always uh, not good for me when it's there. And at some point, and, and, but a lot, so many times, it's so embarrassing, right? The mind is like, "Yeah, but I like it anyway." <laughs> like, I know that anger is not that useful. Yeah, but I like it. <laughs> There's that underlying little quippy voice in us, and even if we say, "No, no, I'm really giving this up now." Yeah, but I really kind of like it, you know. And so there's, it still goes on at some level. And if we see it enough times, and we watch it end, and we really realize that what's better without this there comes a time when the mind is willing to say, okay, um, enough, enough of that one. And it's, you know, it's worth, it's worth having a little humor about <laughs> But, you know, it's a little bit like, to make a real-world analogy, someone who, is, who smokes cigarettes and they've quit ten times, um, but it keeps coming back. And then there's the time when they throw the pack away, and they actually never pick it up again. And we can't predict which time that is, um, although they may know inside. So in in a way, we get to this one, and we know it's something, and we're ready to to give something up. And I I like that... um, it's very unspecific, you know, it just says relinquishment. It doesn't say of what, um, why, is it everything. And so I think it makes it flexible, mm-hmm. is that we could get to step 16 and, you know, relinquish something very small, or this could be this process that we go through that's the very last time. And, you know, we achieve liberation, complete liberation from from that relinquishment. I thought it was the relinquishment of the object. Which object? Well, we're starting with the breath. Mm. Then we go on to the teen stage. And then I thought that was what. Well, the instruction says, I shall breathe in contemplating relinquishment. I shall breathe out contemplating relinquishment. So I never see the object, the breath ending in this at least. 
But I like the since there is this flexibility. Um, I think we don't know what is released necessarily. It could be any or all things. That's my interpretation. I'm totally welcome. Um, I think it sounds like letting go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does mean let letting go. Let go a little bit, let go Let more. go a little bit, yeah. Let go completely. You know, yeah. There are stages of letting go. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're letting go of, it doesn't say. It doesn't say, exactly. the object is. But I did want to say you don't want to let go of breathing. Oh, unless well, you're ready to die. Unless you're ready to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it, it implies that we're still going to be breathing. So then this can sometimes mess with our um, theoretical ideas about what uh, what liberation is going to be like. Some people think, oh, it's going to be the end of everything. Um, everything will, I don't know what, uh, blankness. Sometimes we feel afraid of it because I think it'll just be blankness, nothingness. Um, cessation of all. Actually, the only problem would be if everything ceased, but you still were there. If, yes, you, that. if everything ceased, but you were still there, and you were completely alone in an empty place, that would be hard. Fortunately, we get to cease too. <laughs> so, <laughs> But the breath might still be there. The breath might still be there. Very interesting. So we want to connect this to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, or frame of reference, as Tan Jeff says. And that's what the term he uses for that, which is mind objects, usually called mind objects, or sometimes people call them mental patterns. And this isn't, uh, we're not reading MN10 necessarily, which is where these are talked about, the Satipatthana Sutta. But in that Sutta, it has a, a set of famous lists that we can, um, we have certain instructions around. So the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the four noble truths are the lists that are offered. And we're supposed to contemplate. What does that mean, to contemplate experience in terms of these lists? And we're actually given very simple instructions for the ones that are more about challenges, like the hindrances and the sense bases, our sense experiences. We're supposed to notice that it's there or that it isn't, um, how things arise, how the uh, difficulties with how the hindrance arises, how it ceases and how it can be prevented. So essentially the, you know, the aspects of how to work with a hindrance skillfully. And then for the seven factors of enlightenment, it's about is it there, is it not, how do we generate it if it isn't, and how do we keep it if it's there. So the, you know, the positive aspects of wise effort. And so um, I don't want to talk a lot about MN10, but I'll say that in summary... What this, what, what this foundation of mindfulness is about is starting to see our experience in terms of the teachings. Um, you know, to notice when wholesome factors are there, when unwholesome factors are there, to learn about um, having wise effort around those. And that's exactly what you know, 
what this breath meditation is doing with the, the commentator's claim with the fading away and cessation and relinquishment is that that's equivalent to what's asked, being asked of us, particularly with the five hindrances at the beginning or with the six sense, noticing the fetter of the six sense bases. I have questions about this because um, I would have said that liberating the mind in step 12, there are no hindrances left. <laughs> but we may not have done it completely. Um, what, what did you say? Who needs? Hmm? What did you just say? I said that um, if we're to contemplate in the final tetrad, Right. Things like fading away and cessation and relinquishment. If if the intention is that we're contemplating the fading away of the hindrances, I would have said that they had ended in the before we got to the contemplation step. I think that's why um, I mentioned that Bhikkhu Bodhi um, uh, sees some of this not necessarily as a sequential step, but yeah. a layering. Mm-hmm. Like <coughs> he he talks about color separation. You, you know, you take it four color and you separate it out and you can look at it as the cayenne elements and the magenta elements and stuff and then you put it back and you get the full full color thing. So that even in you're in the fourth tetrad here, you're really looking at it through the lens of the of the of the Dhammas rather than having necessarily completely eliminated mm-hmm. the other th- the things that go away in the tree because they're just different layers of yep. looking at it. Yep. I think that's a fair assessment probably arrived at by a similar you know, noticing of what's there, what isn't there, mm-hmm. how would that work. I would agree with that. Um, I haven't... I was going to s- say at the end some thoughts about how these steps in, the, in my experience with the practice have unfolded, and um, they aren't totally linear in that they are somewhat layered... Kind of like your analogy of being the athlete, because you're doing all the things all at the same time. You know, like you learned how to walk before age one, but you're still employing that out on the field. I think it's like that. Mm-hmm. It, you're, it, it's that that constant, steady effort Refined. becomes effortless because mm-hmm. of we're accustomed to it. But it we're always doing it. We're, we fall off mm-hmm. back onto mm-hmm. the earlier stage. Muscle memory. Muscle memory, right. And we can get that in our mind, too. Yeah. I'm going to start this evening about just noticing how in each of the tetrads we're contemplating, we're addressing more and more subtle aspects of mm-hmm. our being. Yeah. And so we start with the body and then we go to an yeah, energetic like level and the senses mm-hmm. and the feelings and then we go to the mind, which is the thought level, and then it seems like we're going to some even more subtle level, which I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Mm. That level. It seems to me in a higher mind or a some scaric mind, or I mean, how would you well, describe that? It might just be a deepening into the mind, in that the, mm-hmm. there we, we start with an awareness of what are all these layers, and we get to that more subtle sense of what is the mind itself. It, I don't even know that I know what that is necessarily, but then 
you could say, well, are we done? Not quite, because the aim is to not just to know everything about the mind, it's to liberate the mind. And so we have to look at the mind in a particular way. And so we're asked, we're invited to notice um, what's changing in the mind. How do things arise and pass? We're invited, actually, you know, if we really were to understand everything about the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is to, you know, notice how the hindrances arise and pass, notice things about the aggregates, the sense bases, the factors of enlightenment arising, and finally to understand the Four Noble Truths, at least according to this version of the sutta, um, we would be understanding dependent arising. We would be understanding what brings about everything in the mind, and how does everything in the mind cease, and in particular, how does that work for suffering. Well, that's... That's what there is to understand about this landscape. There's, let me say that differently. Actually, that statement was not true. There's lots and lots that you could understand about this. Um, but the Buddha says, if you want to be free, this is how to look at it. This is the things to look at. Remember, he said that the, what I know or what I could have understood is like the leaves in the forest, and what I teach is like the leaves in my hand, because this is what's useful for liberation. Um, so when we get to a very refined mind that's very, very steady, um, then we're asked, we're not done yet, we have to look in a particular way um, in order to see what it is that we need to see to, to let go of the way the mind generates suffering. Does that make sense? I'm trying my best to explain something that's not, that's not easy to explain in words. Because ordinarily in our day-to-day life, the mind just goes along and does its thing. Yep. We don't really provide any guidance or... That's right. It goes by itself. (laughs) And so in the the fourth chapter, it seems like something, some part of us is reflecting on that and helping to guide and direct it, like you say, to that place beyond suffering. Sometimes what's said is that we turn the mirror around and we look at... Sometimes it's said we look right at the looker, which is what Kabita mm-hmm. was referring to with not having as much of a sense of self. We have to look at what Nick said, who is this person? You know, we're so used to just, oh, you know, I'm the one looking, I'm seeing my mind, I'm seeing, etc. At some point it's like, wait a minute, who is that? <laughs> and we realize that it is. It is the mind looking at some part mm-hmm. of itself. And right. that is really, really powerful to... Um, realize that it's all an integrated system. I think until we we understand that, um, the mind can't be completely free. But it frees itself. We're not in the end. We don't do it because who's the we? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. It frees itself. Well, it almost frees itself from itself. Something right. like that. <laughs> yeah. That's what I found. The more that I'm. Find the breath. It it doesn't work. It doesn't. It, it can't freely go through the steps. It's once I just rid myself. Once I get out of the way, but I'm here. It can. It's free to flow. I just notice a little. Nice. Yeah. Shall we um take a, a moment to stretch our legs or move and then do a guided meditation on all of these so we can experience them. I'm pause this.
Okay, so settling into meditation posture. Maybe taking a deep breath first and just allowing it to go out on its own. Let the body find a position of relaxed alertness, softening the face and the shoulders, the belly, the legs. Finding some balance. Allowing the attention to settle onto the sensations of breathing. However, your breath is, is fine. And just observing first. The in-breath and the out-breath, whether they're long or short. Simply knowing. Is the in-breath long or short? Is the out-breath long or short? Could be any combination. Having a feeling of being familiar with how the breath is right now. And we begin to notice the breath as a as an experience within the body. An experience of the body. How it affects parts of the body, even not directly associated with the lungs, feelings through the belly, even through the legs. Feelings against the skin of the clothing shifting. Settling the attention on this breathing body. Curious and interested to feel all of the sensations from that very first touch of the breath on the nostrils or the upper lip, through the filling of the chest and the belly, the stopping of the in-breath and the very beginning of when the out-breath comes all through that relaxation, softening, exhale, 
wanting to see all the way down to those very subtle sensations at the end of the out-breath. The wholeness of the breath. Noticing how the energy from the breath flows through many little channels in the body. Opening to the different sensations that are touched by the breath. Some of them more solid, others more open. Just bringing an awareness to tranquilizing these sensations as the breath flows through all those little tissues. Can it open or soften some little area? Just as gently and naturally as the breath itself flows is this intention to tranquilize. It's not a project or a demand that we make, but an invitation to the body to release a bit, to relax a bit, wherever it can. Breathing in and out. As the breath continues to flow through the body, creating bits of openness, ease, we open also to the pleasure that there is from any feeling of ease might be present in our body. It may only be certain places, but we highlight whatever degree of ease is there physically and allow it to reflect into the mind. We even allow that experience to magnify and grow 
appreciating any degree of ease and pleasure. Breathing in and out, as if the breath could even flow through our feelings. Part of the mind that experiences this pleasure as we open to this world of sensation, we begin to get a sense of the shape of it in in a way, the shape of our feeling mind, we feel all of that through the breath. of tranquility, any parts of the feeling that are a little agitated, a little tight, inviting some degree of ease, well-being. through the feeling part of our mind, supported by the ease of the body and the flow of the breath in and out. Like a body of water coming to stillness As we continue to breathe in and out, we open up to the mind, wholeness of the mind, maybe like the sky arching over that still lake of water. sense that there's a 
kind of a mood or a flavor, subtle in the background of our experience. Some tone or quality to the mind itself. And the degree to which there's a sense of well-being, collectedness, begin to emphasize and notice. This sense in the mind flowing with the in and out breathing. Letting the breath touch everything in our experience. So that we have a sense of vast wholeness. Everything in the mind is of a piece. Everything in the mind belongs. Like everything in that nature scene with the lake and the sky, it all belongs. sense of completeness, there's no feeling of anything missing that needs to be added or that needs to be taken away or filled with the contentment of a mind at ease with the in and out breathing. is not completely still even though it's content we notice that there's a bird flying through the sky very slight ripples on the water shifts in the air and we turn our attention to the to these changes 
whether they're quick little flickers or long, slow waves. The natural shifts and changes of the mind come to the fore as we continue to breathe in and out. Resting in the very movement itself. At peace with the coming and the going. deep sense of okayness to pervade experience. Everything is as it should be. It's okay for anything to arise. okay for anything to cease. Everything becoming still spreading out softening to a stop. The flow of the breath still happens, but as if with no movement. Letting go 
any direction to experience. Just letting go. Still, there's the breath. Maybe long, maybe short. Just this experience of breathing. So gently returning. Does anyone have anything to share? We talked earlier about the four tetrads linking up with the four foundations of mindfulness. I'll just mention that one nice thing that the Anapanasati Sutta does then is it says all of that development of mindfulness through those four foundations, that was actually developing the first of the factors of awakening, which is mindfulness. 
It says when you've really done all those four, that is what it means for mindfulness to be a factor of awakening. I kind of like this because it, um, one thing I like about it is that, you know, mindfulness is in so many lists. Um, You can say, well, is it always the same thing? But as I alluded to earlier, I feel like mindfulness has different aspects to it, and different things come to the fore depending what practice you're doing or what stage you're at or how it's being used or whatever, how your mind is wired up. Um, And this points out that, at least what they mean in this sutta, is that um, having you gone through the 16 steps, uh, the mindfulness that one has generated through that, which has you know this completeness to it of having touched all four foundations, that is what makes it a factor of awakening. And then it has a nice sequence where it says, from that, one will feel um, interested in investigating this, which is the second factor of awakening, and it describes how they each unfold sequentially. I don't think we need to take this as a linear path. It's presented linearly in this particular teaching, but I'm aware that in other teachings, the seven factors of awakening are not seen as a sequence necessarily. There's a famous sutta where they're seen in two sets of one, some being energizing and some being tranquilizing. And they balance each other out as they develop. So this is just one way of seeing them. It's the way it's described in this as a sequential unfolding. I'm just completing the sutta. And so from there, with the seven factors of awakening, these are qualities that are said to become very strong when the mind is, is ready to be free. And so from there... We're told that we achieve true knowledge and deliverance, supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and ripening in relinquishment, which I think is lovely, because dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment are the last three steps, and seclusion describes the first three tetrads, the creation of concentration. So, at least for minds... Like mine, this sutta is kind of like tied up in a neat little bow. (laughs) 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 And um, most likely this um, sutta was assembled um, when the teachings became more analytical and more structured. It was put together as um, a nice a nice set of instructions that also link in with some of the other teachings that the Buddha gives. I think it's actually very well constructed. Um, So there's, yeah, there's kind of a a satisfyingness to it, satisfaction to it, if you see it in that way at least. I'm also really aware that we were super-duper quiet after that meditation, but (laughs) Um, it's nice, right, in that you you see the unfolding of how these can relate to each other. Does anyone have any overall...
comments about about him in 118 or about the 16 steps. You know, it takes a long time to develop them all, but this is maybe we've had an experience now through these three sessions. At least get that sense of, of going inward with it. Did you feel that too? Yeah, that's what I was sensing you were thinking of. I think it's interesting that breath meditation is usually what you learn in an introduction to meditation, mindfulness meditation course in about the first week. You know, it's given to you as the first object. Don't underestimate what you learn first. (laughs) I think it really, um, this sutta at least implies that it it would go all the way to our hanship. The Buddha was said to do breath meditation, some of the other Suttas say that that was what he practiced. Even after awakening, he practiced it. I can see why. It emphasizes the pleasant, right? You know, the Buddha doesn't need to do more work, so he would choose meditations that are focusing on the the positive, tranquilizing feelings. Well, even if you're enlightened things that go on around you could be quite difficult to deal with in a little breath meditation might. Well, this is a good point. I mean, the Buddha did have cases where, you know, his monks were arguing and he got annoyed and went off into the woods by himself. It's not that his life was suddenly perfect after he was awake. Uh, He was still living in the world. I don't think the Buddha suffered for that. I don't think he felt aversion or anger. But sometimes you could just be like frustrated. That, yeah. That nobody else gets it. I mean, that's part of why he doesn't want to teach. Oh, I see. Yeah, he originally had that thought, but he had so much compassion once the God asked him to teach that I don't know if, if I don't know if he felt that frustration later. Maybe he did. He was worried he would feel it, and then he was asked by a God, "Oh." You know, but there are people who will understand it. It's kind of like the carrot. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay. But it's interesting, actually, what you said about not um, needing to do more. He, there is a sutta where somebody says to him, well, why is it that you still go on retreat? As the, you know, do you still have work to do? And he says, no, I don't still have work to do, but I do still go on retreat for two reasons. One is for a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and the other is to set a good example. <laughs> he says, I'm a model, so people watch what I do, so I go meditate in the woods because that's what I want them to do. I thought that was quite nice and balancing. Yeah, mostly. But there's a verse in, uh, I think it's in Dhammapada, which Buddha says, wisdom dies without practice. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um I'm not sure I've heard that exact translation, but yeah, maybe it withers, something like that, if that sounds familiar. Maybe I'm miscoding. Uh-huh, yeah. Along um, the lines of that. Mm. 
I think this is the case for um, someone for whom there are still factors in the mind that can cause the decay of wisdom. It's true that if we don't, if we're still on the path, if we don't keep up the practice, certain things will fade. Kind of like, you know, you don't play your violin for a while and then you pick it up and it's certain stuff isn't there anymore. But you can get it back. Um, all that momentum that was built up. Um, but I think I, I feel like in the mind of the Buddha, there weren't any forces that could bring about decay. Because he had no wrong views, which would be the ultimate source of that. Yeah. At least that would be my understanding of a Buddha. Okay, so... Um, we did also supposedly look at this other sutta, and then 62. Did anyone read that one? A few people will see some nods. We won't try to read the whole thing. It's a long sutta. But it's, um, I just wanted to do, I mean, mostly, of course, we were focusing on the discourse on mindfulness of breathing. But, um, and then 62, which is the greater discourse on advice to Rahula, um, also mentions, did you guys notice, that it also mentions the 16 steps. They're listed there word for word. I think, did I get that right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And so I thought it provided some interesting context, because you know, this is another instance where he gave the same teaching that he gave in MN118, which, if you may remember the context of that one, is it's like the gathering of this amazing star-studded set of <laughs> arahants and students, and it's like, wow, how come I didn't get into that retreat? The lottery, I didn't get into the lottery on that retreat. Um, <laughs> um, and they were they had already been meditating for three months, and he was so amazed with how their practice was going that they meditated for another month after that. And then he praised, basically praised breath meditation as something that was very fruitful to develop and something that some of the people there were developing. And so it's a very particular context for offering that teaching. And this other sutta gives it a different context for where he offered that same teaching. Um, And that's the occasion of speaking with his son, Rahula is the Buddha's son, and I'll just say some background that um, I have heard that this, the commentators say that this was given to Rahula when he was about 14. So he was a teenager, and he'd been a monk for a while by then. So I don't want to go through all of it, but I do want to highlight that um, the mindfulness of breathing is not the first teaching that he it's not. He doesn't get to it right away. You know, he's, there's this little scene where um, <laughs> where Rahula decides not to go into alms for alms food because he um, realizes he had a uh, a bad thought, I guess, he had an arrogant thought, something like that. And then um, and then he's given all these other teachings, right? He asks for teachings and. 
he's told to develop the elements, so an awareness of the elements. This, by the way, is the um, the famous case where the often gets quoted in Dharma talks of make your meditation like the earth, you know, make your meditation like water, like fire. People throw things on the earth and throw things in the water, and the water is unmoved. So it's a it's a um, expression of equanimity, essentially, is to do these the way the element meditations are taught here. And then even that, you know, he goes through earth, water, fire, and air, and space. Um, And then beyond that, he's told to do a bunch of other things, develop loving kindness, develop compassion, develop altruistic joy, develop equanimity. So he's asked to develop the Brahma Viharas. Uh, These are fairly important things. And then develop various reflections, a meditation on foulness, on impermanence. Um, And then, finally, we get to mindfulness of breathing. And then he gives the 16 steps. So there's there's a lot of prep, is the impression I've left with. I'm curious what you think of that. You know, what... um, We teach breath meditation at the very beginning... Um, here it's offered later after these other steps what is the significance of going through all these other things as preparation for breath meditation there isn't one answer I'm just asking what you think about all these things I'm thinking you know that if you if you uh, do the Brahma Viharas or you uh, do um, the meditation on foulness or the 32 parts of the body or things like that, you are setting the mind up. You're training it in ways that make it incline so that breath meditation is more fruitful. Mm -hmm. That would be my take on why do some of these things first. And it actually reflects my own practice where I, Mm. I could not do breath meditation when I started. Really? And it's only been in the last of... 15 months uh-huh. that I have begun to be able to do that. But I've done a year of metta, and, you know, a year of the body, and so I've done these preparations, and so it just makes perfect sense to me. This is fantastic. I, See? Just, I lucked into it, yeah. but they're all Dharma doors, you know. Yeah, 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 there are. Um, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I, I don't know your experience with this sutta then, but I always feel like, I often feel like when I find a sutta that matches my own experience, I have this feeling of, wow, <laughs> you know, this is like, this he's describing um, kind of how something unfolded for me, and this was written long ago, far away, a different part of the world, um, but he's really, it really, what I feel is a feeling of universality. This is, he really knew how the mind develops, and our minds are not that different than they were back then, and for some people this is going to be like this, or, yeah, and it's, um, I always get this sense of kind of continuity of the lineage and over the timelessness of the Dharma. Yeah, yeah I think it also expresses, since you can come at it from different directions, mm-hmm. starting from wherever you are. You start wherever you are, yep. And so some, some people can start right off with breath meditation and... Yep. 
Other people can't. So, yeah, or if you believe in multiple lifetimes, they did all that stuff in a prior lifetime. So, you know, <laughs> they started different place. I wondered if it had in part to do with his being a teenager, that he needed really? some more Steadiness. sort of concrete mm-hmm. things uh-huh. to do before yeah. he got to the... The more subtle, yeah. Maybe, yeah. It's very possible. He's addressing the teenage mind here, so <laughs> maybe that tells us something. <laughs> Although I don't know they had teenagers back then. I mean, they had the, the, same the way. years, but I don't think they had the mm. the suspended animation that poor teenagers live in, where they <laughs> have an adult body but are not given adult responsibilities. I think they did. They yeah. had the brahmacharya stage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They had a brahmachari stage. Didn't hear forbidden sexual encounter until a certain age. So there was that. I, I can't so. hear any of that. I'm sorry. Can you restate what you They had the brahmachari stage. There were forbidden sexual encounter until a certain age. So they didn't have that responsibility. They were old enough to care for themselves and um, strong enough to do a lot of work that they didn't enter into family life until a certain time. Ah, okay. So this is something about Indian culture at the time. So we have our, yeah. So there there may have been aspects that were, in a way this, yeah. Yeah. No, see, what I thought it was is that he just didn't quite get it. So he told his son, he's like, God, I don't know. Oh, gee. Try this, try this, try this. See, there's lots of, exactly, many different practices. It's your son, huh? <laughs> yeah, it felt like something clicked because it, it didn't seem like he got in too deep mm-hmm. stepwise into Indian teachings up until then, and then it just felt like like a, a Dharma door opened up, mm-hmm. and maybe he, something, you know, he could feel something click yeah. on the other side, and then it opened up. And then it opened the up for him. Yeah. And the signifier of that was... He was going to go without his food. He went back. He didn't accompany her. Right. Know, he was entree. willing he to. Back, okay, that is it. I am. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess maybe the last thing I'll highlight of this sutta is that the very, very end, the last paragraph, he says, um, this is how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated. So it is great fruit and great benefit. That's exactly the same line as in the other one. And he says, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated in this way, even the final in-breaths and out-breaths are known as they cease, not unknown. So, most commentators say this refers to you know, to death, to the final in and out breathing, is that you would develop <coughs> such a strength of attention that um, you, know, you would be even able to observe your own ceasing of your last breath which I think would be an amazing thing. Okay, so the... um, Your ongoing homework (laughs) is to see how this continues to develop for you if you're... If you're interested, I know some of you have already been doing breath meditation for a while, and um, or some have sort of newly discovered it. But if you're interested, 
the 16 steps are available. You now know where to find them if you want to review them. We've talked through them. and But really the experience of how it unfolds for you is where the, the learning will come. My sense, um, you know, from having... I've done about a decade of this practice, is that the steps end up being descriptive, less than prescriptive over time, is that he's captured... They're a nice set of instructions that you can use, um, but he's also captured a process that goes on if the mind is set up to do this. Um, And I don't know if it's like this for everyone, but I'll offer that... um, I find that my mind, that they are, they're not literally linear, um, but that it, they, there is kind of a progression, and the mind will come in somewhere, like it might start with the body, or it might, like Nick said, it might land on a feeling tone, that seems to be where it is, and then it might do like the entire meditation on two or three steps, it's like that's all that develops there, or it could actually go all the way through to relinquishment of something and then um, start again. Now I've gone, I've looped through a few times. I, I had a, I think I told you I did this, uh, an entire three-month retreat doing breath meditation the entire time. So I saw different aspects of it. And, and there was a time when my mind was just sort of cycling and I would be sitting there and I wasn't quite tracking the steps. That was sort of too, too much mental effort for me at the time. But I would, um, you know, I'd be getting very subtle, and then I would suddenly have this thought, this is a long breath, <laughs> would pop into my mind, you know, after, you know, an hour of meditation. And I was like, where did that come from? And finally I realized, oh, it's, it's starting again at one. <laughs> you know, it's something, I don't know exactly what was relinquished, but, um, and it would, you know, it would actually do that. So, I think it's, a, I think it's, for you to discover, you know, how this unfolds for you. Um, or if I didn't literally experience these different layers necessarily. I, I really experienced it as more linear. Um, but but as having many loops, sort of like the Eightfold Path, you know, it's not like you start with one and get to eight. You know, they, they keep looping at different levels. Um, so I'd encourage you to explore. It can be very interesting. Any other comments? Thank you so much. Mm. I love this practice. It's um, yeah. Well, I agree with the Buddha that it's of great fruit and great benefit. (laughs) So. It just feels so wonderful to just to share it. Okay, well, let's just sit for a couple of minutes. Sit and breathe.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.